are here. At 11FS headquarters in London, we work for episode 24 of Blockchain Insider. Today, we bring you SIBO and their futures hitting the Bitcoin price, an ongoing debate over Bitcoin's mining and energy usage, and we have a fantastic interview from Jamie Burke, the CEO of Outlier Ventures. On with the news. Joining me for the news once again is the one and only Colin G. Platt, back in London for a second week in a row. How are you feeling? Are you feeling like you've been rained on and snowed on fully? And snowed on. I I really, really don't like winter. (laughs) Winter is coming, my friend, and that's what they're saying about the uh, Bitcoin prices, apparently, but uh, we'll see all the different views of it. Um, Before we get into today's episode, uh, today's episode of Blockchain Insider is brought to you by Quora. Corda is an open source blockchain platform that allows businesses to transact directly in strict privacy using smart contracts. Corda enables complex transactions using real assets and legally binding agreements without the need for a trusted intermediary. Corda is the result of a collaborative effort led by R3 in collaboration with over 160 of the world's largest banks and technology partners. It's ready to build today, and the financial community is deploying Corda to manage their agreements and move assets globally. Uh, You can transform your business ecosystem with a platform selected by the world's largest institutions to build their future on. Go to Corda.net to learn more. Colin G. Platt, with all the GSAS... Should we get into the news? Should we oh, do there's lots of things to, you know, hit on and be sassy about. This. Are you feeling like this week's news is, is the most sassy news of all time? Well, I don't know. We're not going to talk as much about kitties this week as we did last week. No, but there might be some other animals. We were talking in the office earlier about a crypto chimera. But before we get to that, I think the story of this week has to be the fact that Bitcoin futures are now available for trading. So what is a future? Let's recap it one last time. And uh, what happened once trading started? Well, I think first we need to kind of cue the gif of Ron Paul doing it's happening in the background. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is a future? A future is a financial product that allows uh, two counterparties, somebody to buy and somebody to sell or long and short, as we say in the industry, um, to trade the price of something between now when they enter into the contract and a certain point in the future, hence the name. Um, these go through a central clearing counterparty. Uh, they're traded on an exchange, so that central clearing counterparty is that ca- uh, clearing house. It's essentially somebody that stands between the two counterparties to say, uh, if there's a risk, we will make sure that it's covered. Um, this helps reduce the total risk in the system. Clearinghouse has been in, in existence for hundreds and hundreds of years. So why are people calling this like the mainstream moment? And is it a mainstream moment? Last week you said it's a big old slap in the face of mainstreaming. Is is that what seems to have happened? Uh, yeah. So uh, I think there's two parts and I think it's nuanced here. Um, so this is the first time that cryptocurrencies are available to a larger audience than simply uh, rich people or retail investors that go into exchanges. Um, there have been products that trade on exchanges or trade in private markets that track Bitcoin or are somehow involved in Bitcoin. Um, Sweden's been working with something called an ETN, an exchange traded note, uh, for several years now. Uh, this is the first time that the US markets at an institutional level, meaning banks, hedge funds, pension funds, anybody can get into this thing and trade exactly Bitcoin or something trading exactly fixed to Bitcoin. I think that's a really interesting point because the mania we'd seen in recent weeks with this hitting the mainstream press and being talked about regularly was really about uh, the amount of Coinbase and uh, Blockchain.com and the other wallets out there being opened by retail investors who wanted to buy one of those things, whatever they were. Uh, And now it's kind of flipping from that into actually this is more institutionally focused. But um, what happened after these became available, Colin? There's an article here, I think, on desk about the website becoming inaccessible right so this week we're recording earlier than we normally do so gary when we give you the price update later it's going to be even more out of date so sorry about that um it, this opened on sunday evening uh the 10th of december uh chicago time and what happened is essentially there was a bit of activity uh i think we traded something like a thousand contracts two thousand contracts in the first few hours now The Sunday night open is what they call extended hours uh, at the CBOE. This is essentially anybody that doesn't work in a large institution might get involved. They jokingly in Chicago call this amateur hour. So uh, no surprise that this is actually when Bitcoin had quite a bit of volatility. (laughs) Um, 
Today uh, in the afternoon, I was watching this when the main regular hours in Chicago opened. There wasn't a ton more vol- um, volume that came through. There was a bit more, but I think. Um, what do you mean by now, not a ton more volume? What what would you expect for some some regular commodity? Um, what would you expect versus one of the main exchanges? And and what was this sort of doing? So um, right now, as we're looking at this on Monday evening, uh, London time, so about middle of the day Chicago time on the first day of trading, we've had about. 3,500 contracts, which are one-to-one with Bitcoin trade. Um, If we compare this with something like um, a gold future, you're having uh, just in one month, probably 20,000 of these things trade uh, per day. So this is still relatively small. Um, Now, it is the first day. We could get more people coming in. Uh, It is worth noting that a lot of um, banks that would have been involved, clearing member banks, uh, decided to sit this one out. They didn't want to be involved. They had problems with the volatility of Bitcoin, and they thought these things didn't have enough consultation were too early. Well, and we've talked about... um the some of the exchanges in Bitcoin having had problems in recent weeks with um, going down and not being accessible. Um, did did something happen here with SIBO and, yeah, and so were there some technical challenges? So that's a funny one. So SIBO um, SIBO.com, their website went down actually um, because there was so much interest and in people were coming in that the website just kind of fell apart. Their service provider didn't have enough uh, bandwidth for it. So um, a lot of people were joking about how Coinbase and Kraken and a lot of these other exchanges were out. The fact that SIBO.com itself went out is kind of a non-issue. I mean, it's a website you can go in, you can look at products, and a lot of people were looking at the, the price feeds and the data coming out of it, trying to th- see if, if Bitcoin was going to go to 100000 or whatever. It did pop up a bit, um, I think, to about 16500 US or so, so up uh, up about 20%, and we did break a couple of those circuit breakers. Um, but it is worth noting the exchange and how that worked uh, wasn't affected at all by the website getting... Uh, so it's interesting. So the the public website is is just a public-facing website. It's like your, your homepage. The actual exchange itself stayed, but there were circuit breakers hit. So this means there was a, such a large move that there is software within that that says, actually, that's too much volatility in the market. We're going to pause what's happening and and slow everything down a little bit, which is the type of maturity you'd expect from an older exchange organization. It's the type of maturity that you'd expect. It's not necessarily the type that will necessarily help reduce volatility in Bitcoin. Um, There were some interesting articles uh, that came out where people who run non-traditional, so uh, newer exchanges, um, BitMEX being one of them, uh, that trade Bitcoin futures, they said, actually, this this could increase volatility in the short term. Um, so have to remember that Bitcoin trades in most exchanges seven days a week. SIBO, uh, of course, is only open five and a half days a week. Interesting times. People are going to be watching those opens and those closes. Um, and if institutional money does come in, seems too early to say, but uh, let's see what happens next. Uh, but I guess flipping from the kind of institutional side to, well, to not the institutional side, there's a story that you found, Colin, on news.bitcoin.com, which says getting Bitcoin on grandma's Android phone in just three easy steps. Top. Um, uh, I mean, come on. <laughs> uh it's, it's great to know that it's easier to get Bitcoin and to use Bitcoin, but this is so irresponsible. Um, your grandmother should not be buying Bitcoin, full stop. If you don't understand Bitcoin, you should not be buying Bitcoin. Uh, this article is just saying, basically, it's so easy, you don't need to understand it. Uh, you can set up your Android phone, which is already a bad idea because you will probably lose Bitcoin because they can't assure that your private keys will be safe. I think everybody misses a part of this argument, which is the the be your own bank argument and the invest in stuff yourself argument assumes you know what you're doing. And actually, there's probably nothing wrong with the level of financial inclusion and kind of access to be able to invest if it's supported with the financial literacy and the education you need to be able to do that. And that is the role for that needs to be done, that you user experience, that customer experience is very rarely built around that education piece and helping you understand what you're investing in. And there's there's the 
work of uh, kind of wealth managers for many decades has actually been preventing people who've inherited a load of money from wasting it. And there's probably something to be said for that, hey, don't be too reckless here. Now, granted, there's a lot of people in the Bitcoin space that have made a lot of money by being reckless, uh, but it could all still go horribly wrong. So how that maturity comes is interesting. And I noticed, Colin, that... Um, Coinbase, I think, on their blog put out a please invest responsibly statement, probably in response to just the overwhelming amount of uh, accounts being opened. Absolutely. And um, I mean, we, we talk about the volatility being all over the place. There are surely these people are seeing a brunt of it. Coinbase being one of the largest companies in here. We talked last week about the sheer number of accounts that have been opened. Um, what I thought was um, uh, disappointing was to see the way that they worded the title. Um, please invest responsible. First, this is taking directly we see in the UK, please gamble responsibly. It's probably more accurate, to be honest, um, and it's probably uh, we don't necessarily want to consider Bitcoin as an investment per se quite yet. Um, it is still a gamble on the future of whether cryptocurrencies will work, which is still up in the air. I mean, we talk on this show, we're quite positive about them, um, but we would caution anybody who's considering putting money in Bitcoin, more money, uh, to really think about whether you might need this money in the future, because there's a high likelihood that it may all go up in flames. Completely. I think um, in terms of understanding the space more, like I don't think either of us are pre presenting ourselves as the Bitcoin Oracle and far from it. So what are your resources that you find super helpful uh, when just kind of trying to understand the space? Because let's face it, it's emerging. It's still new and it could be an entirely different thing in six months. Yeah. So um, I spend a lot of time reading about cryptocurrencies, reading about um, blockchains and DLT. And I've been doing that since 2013. Um, it, it's hard to give you kind of a, a canon of these are the things you need to read. Um, but I, I definitely would highly recommend anybody that wants to look into this. Andreas Antonopoulos wrote a book called Mastering Bitcoin. Uh, very technical, but definitely worth reading through that. Um, there's some other good resources out there. Coinbase does do a very good job at providing some basics about uh, how to use their platform, about how to use Bitcoin. And uh, people are more than happy to help if you ask questions on Twitter, on Reddit, if you go to rbitcoin, rbtc, uh, if you're interested in Ethereum, or Ethereum, all these types of things. They talk about if you are new into these things. Consensus is another great thing specifically for Ethereum. But they are complex products, and these are complex um, ways to place your money. Without question. So uh, whilst we're learning a little bit more about the whole Bitcoin space, uh, there's been a number of articles uh, in the past few years, weeks, months, and pretty much every time it's mentioned uh, in the mainstream, somebody brings up, oh, but doesn't it use a lot of power? And we've covered that on this show before. Um, a couple of articles here that stand out um, that Bitcoin apparently consumes more electricity in a year than Ireland, um, and RT.com reporting that Bitcoin mining uses uses more electricity than 159 countries. I want to get into the psychology of why people point this out, because uh, why do you think that is? Why is the power consumption of this currency, this crypto asset, this new technology seen as something that's so, so crucial to, for people to consider? So uh, before we get started on this, there's, there is a lot of nuance in this, and, and we are we only have so much time in this show. So uh, I think we'll talk about this more in the future. But um, Bitcoin itself was built around a mining process that uses something called proof of work. Essentially, um, there are a number of miners around the world, and this was assumed in the, the white paper for Bitcoin that says, um, we want some degree of randomness of who mines the next block, validates transactions every 10 minutes. And we need this to be random. And the way you do this is, as I said, proof of work, which is essentially solving a very complex uh, mathematical problem, um, which is based on cryptography. Um, we can assume that uh, the more money, electricity, hardware you invest in this, the higher your likelihood of in any given 10 minute block of winning that bet is. Now, this has become an arms race. It was assumed that this would become an arms race as the price of Bitcoin increased, people would invest more money, they'd put more electricity in it. Um, we've seen this go from, yes, a race, but still very, very small to now, um, I've seen estimates putting this all the way up to, um, what is it, 8.7 terahertz uh, per year, which is, what, as much as Ireland or Denmark now? I think it's around about Nigeria. 
Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a size by estimates. It's the size of a of a reasonably big country. Um, now, a lot of people are starting to worry about that because, obviously, um, as we start to consider environmental concerns uh, and reducing our emissions, uh, using electricity to power Bitcoin may or may not be prudent. And a lot of people have pointed out. Um, perhaps because they don't see the value in Bitcoin, uh, that this is consuming a lot of electricity and they think maybe it's better spent elsewhere. So the interesting thing about this, though, is generally there's a macro problem, which is we need to get off fossil fuels and we need to get into renewables. Uh, there's a macro problem about uh, how you put something in perspective as well. So you can talk about Bitcoin using as much energy as 520,000 Canadians every day or more than Nigeria, or you can talk about it as using as much as six aircraft carriers. Um, but also you can say that it would only last the USA for a couple of days. So there's, there's different ways ways of putting things into perspective that make some things seem big or large. What I'm interested in is the human psychology, because if you were to look at NSA data centers or Google data centers, they'd, they'd score pretty high on this. And if you were to put like all of IBM or all of Google's data centers together, they'd dwarf Bitcoin. Uh, there are things that use a lot more energy. So I'm just wondering, like, did it become a meme somewhere along the line? Or is it just the fact that it's decentralized and the fact that there's no one legal entity, there's no company that's paying that electricity cost that suddenly looks bad because part of the reason i think that the usa consumes so much energy is because a lot of its data the world's data centers are based there there are a lot of things that we do in terms of energy production that that count towards it there's a lot of stuff that happens in china uh, around growing a new economy that means we've got all kinds of power stations there i just wonder if uh, there's an interesting thing where somebody wants to discover this subject and attaches to some of the things that aren't necessarily the most important. Yes and no. And I, uh, you and I had a discussion about this last night, and I think we disagree on a few of the aspects of it. Um, a lot of people, and let's face it, a lot of people still think Bitcoin is useless. Um, and if you think something's useless and you look at the sheer energy consumption, even if the number was a fraction of what it is now, you would say that's a waste because you think Bitcoin is useless. Right. Now, people who are strong believers in this would believe that you can consume much more than you do now and it would still be worth it. The answer is somewhere in between. Um, it's also worth bearing in mind that a lot of the production of electricity that goes into Bitcoin is done in the cheaper areas. And that's for two reasons. First is the economic... Um, cost of, of extracting that energy um, to put into Bitcoin has a, a bottom line uh, effect for a Bitcoin miner. So they tend to congregate in places that either have a large percentage of cheap renewable energy, like Iceland and Washington State, where I'm from, or they go to places where they have highly subsidized electricity or stolen electricity in some cases, like China, Venezuela, or Quebec. Um, Quebec, I don't believe they're stealing it, but I believe it's highly subsidized. Um, now, uh, at some point, um, it's feasible that Bitcoin could grow quite a bit more in those subsidies markets, and we may run out of the budget in those areas for the particular subsidy. Venezuela's already started to crack down on miners specifically because of this, as well as the effect that it has on their own monetary base. Venezuela is having a lot of financial problems, but is a much smaller economy. It's harder to, to imagine that effect on Quebec or, or the country of Canada at this point, or indeed China. Well, listeners, I want to know your thoughts. Get in touch with us at BeChain Insider or drop us an email, podcasts at 11fs.com. What do you think? Do you think the issue's overblown? Do you think the issue's really important? Do you think it's a reason why Bitcoin can't survive? Do you think it's a reason why Bitcoin's obviously going to change the future? What is the reason behind people getting attached to the energy usage as, uh, as such a major subject? So, Colin, I've got to move us to the next story. Um, Digital Asset Holdings, uh, famously CEO uh, Blythe Masters, um, they have uh, been selected by the Australian Stock Exchange uh, to use their blockchain technology. So it looks like all of the work they've been doing in proof of concepts and pilots has paid off, and they're actually going to commercialize a thing. I think really big news. Uh, a lot of people have been talking for some time about what's going to happen. Will it become real? Um, so, Colin, what are your thoughts on this one? 
So we've, we've talked a lot about Bitcoin cryptocurrency. So now we're back in the switching gears, back in the DLT world. Um, so permission blockchains or more properly distributed ledger technology. Um, Digital Asset Holdings announced uh, way back in early 2016 that they were working with the Australian Securities Exchange or the ASX, uh, which is, of course, the big exchange in Sydney, um, to look at how they change something called chess, which is the technology for their clearinghouse. We talked about clearinghouses a minute ago. Uh, for futures, this is clearinghouses for exchanges in Australia. Um, they started working on this project and got a little bit of investment, not only from them, but for other companies like uh, Mildshot, BNP Paribas, as well as Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, and a few others, um, to start looking at this and a few other projects. Um, the goal is to take all the processes that happen after you hit, yes, I want to buy a stock in Australia, and move that into a DLT. Um, they had a, a very long process to look at, can this be done? Is it better to do it with or without a DLT? And it was just announced this last week that, yes, we're going to go ahead and we're going to use DLT provided by Digital Asset Holding to launch a system in 2018 that uses everything you've showed us and at a production level. So this is really exciting for people that are working in DLT, not just a digital asset and congratulations guys, but for everybody else that's been looking at not the cryptocurrency, but the DLT permission blockchain side. A rising tide lifts all ships. And I often talk about the, the barbell, you know, on one side, you've got the crypto assets, cryptocurrencies, and on the other side, you've got DLT and permissioned, and they always seem opposed with each other. To me, both of them progressing is, is a good thing and congratulations to them. I mean, linked to this, um, UBS launched, uh, a live Ethereum platform, uh, or is to launch a live Ethereum platform with Barclays, Credit Suisse, and more. Um, not a lot of time to cover this one, but this is a story from Coindesk. Uh, and I think this is an interesting one because it was aimed really at dealing with compliance and some regulatory requirements. Um, so it's named the, described internally as a massively autonomous distributed reconciliation platform. Um, they are looking to make sure that uh, the, they're working with legal identity and identity so this is how do I identify Coca-Cola from PepsiCo and, and know the difference between those legal entities. Um, those That system has been around as a standard for a number of years, but everybody stores it in slightly a different way. Um, but instead of them all doing it independently and mandating everybody has their own list and everybody does their own checks, they're doing this reconciliation um, together. So really interesting article here on Coindesk, because if you are in the DLT space and if you're in financial services, um, they've done a mock live pilot. Uh, this could be getting very close to live. And there's a really interesting quote from Lee Brain the, um, from, from Barclays, who says, um, it's a nice narrow use case that makes it easier to appreciate the innovative cryptographic technique that allows each bank to retain data privacy and yet also check its own data against baseline data maintained via group consensus. Why is this a problem in financial services that we can't just sync data up? Surely just cryptographic signatures would solve this for me, Colin. Well, yes and no. Um, I mean, one of the one of the big issues that we've had that, that permission DLT offers us is the ability to not retain all this data in a single place and market to that. So currently what we do is you keep a bit of data and I keep a bit of data. And of course, we both have our own standards of doing that, even if we adhere to a high level standard um, proposed by ISDA or anybody else. Um, and what this allows us to do is not only use the cryptographic proofs, which would mean that we need to have everything in the same way, but we actually have a handshake and we're using the same data structure. So that is the, the heavy lifting, which is for anybody else not working in a bank, really rather boring, um, but is very important and helps reduce the cost. And this is something that um, DAH is also leveraging and what we just talked about. Corda uses a lot of these things and it's bringing those standards together to really be very tightly knit rather than looking at how do we actually move physical assets in in the cryptocurrency public blockchain land. So I think it's really interesting to see what's actually coming live is of this reconciliation nature of how do we shake hands, agree that this has happened, keep our own records, and then move on and do something. Else. I think if you've never worked in financial services, it's easy to underestimate the amount of different bits of data that are held in the amount of different databases that have the amount of different standards about how they're held and how they can very easily get out of sync. It's like this giant spider's web. So to bring us all to consensus on what that should be could, could be helpful. Um, Colin, there's so much news this week. Um, next one up is France are going to allow blockchain for trading unlisted securities. 
I think this is the most important story of the week because it's about France. Of course you do. <laughs> and I'm moving there tomorrow, so bye-bye Brexit Britain. Um, so Hey, we got a deal now, so you know everything's fine here. <laughs> yeah. And we got snow before Christmas. <laughs> what more do you want? It's you beautiful, can't bring it? that sass up in here. <laughs> <laughs> so so um, Bruno Le Maire, who is the... Um, uh, the finance minister in France um, has announced that they have a, they have passed a series of ordinances or, or rules uh, in France to allow specifically blockchain uh, listing of securities that are not traded on the main exchange, the the CAC 40 or or the French um, bourse. It's really interesting to see because this could spur a whole lot of SME uh, development and, and movement in the capital markets. So smaller companies, we talked a, a, a bit about Nivora a few weeks ago. Uh, this is kind of that same vein. How do we, as a smaller company, we can't necessarily afford to go to a big investment bank and put something in the main exchange. Yeah. How do we move stuff around and access a wide wider range of investors? And how do they reduce their costs and actually invest in something. So I think it's a really good thing. And because we're joking about Brexit still, that is one of the driving things. They want to make France more attractive. So it's really interesting to see. We talk a lot about innovation and hype. France is actually, you know, taking that step forward. And I think this is something we're going to see more and more from countries saying, right, we don't just want to talk about the window dressing of being innovative. We actually want to show rules and changes and open up the doors for it. It's interesting to me how policy can be uh, a way to drive innovation and being thoughtful about your policy can really attract investment and uh, enable innovators to do things because in this whole crypto asset space it has lived a little bit in places that aren't considered particularly strong regulatory regimes rather than regulatory regimes that are more reactive and so like the classic hit has been Zug Switzerland or we've seen a little bit in Singapore but actually Singapore has been really reactive in learning and adapting and changing uh, London had historically been very very good at that uh, interesting to see France and others start to take on that mantle um, but speaking of Zug Switzerland there's a story that's very much based there next uh, this one is actually on TechCrunch by the European editor Mike Butcher no less um, asset management startups using blockchain to get their own trade body first of all interesting that that title made TechCrunch second of all interesting who's involved with this so this is um, the multi-chain asset management association or MAMA for short um, this uh, yeah this just great naming people, <laughs> was formed at the first annual M0 conference in Zug, Switzerland. So it was initiated by Mellonport um, and Busman Advisory, of course. Um, no surprises there. Um, and I guess they aim to become a source of information for the latest thinking and knowledge within the, in the industry to establish itself as a reliable, thought-provoking, responsible body capable for making quick decisions and lobbying for blockchain-based asset management. Um, founding members include Credit Suisse, uh, AG, but then it's like Passport Capita, um, Tax Compliance, Busman's Advisory, Consensus, Bitcoin Suisse, Crypto Fund, um, OX Project, Omega One, Vault, Kryptonite. A lot of these look like people who are in the crypto asset space. It's not a lot of traditional asset managers here. No, um, but I, I think what's really key about this is um, companies that are looking to uh, up their game and become more investable and, and really take a go at this. We talked earlier about Bitcoin becoming uh, more institutional friendly through uh, futures. These are companies saying, well, maybe ICOs will actually make that leap from um, a, a quasi-legal, perhaps completely illegal uh, game that happens inside the blockchain to actually something that makes a lot of sense. Um, join this in with the story about France. If these things are really taking off, what are the standards around these? How are people actually getting in them? How are you holding them? So you look at a lot of these companies, and they're actually doing that today in real life. I think I was being facetious, but without question, like the whole asset management and investing industry, when you're all holding funds in your pension fund or if you're trying to buy or, or do any kind of investment the gap between you as a person buying that or it being held on your behalf or it being held for a corporate or for a charity or for anybody that has any kind of funds anywhere in the asset management industry there are so many parties that are still sending faxes to each other in 2017 the whole thing is such a mess um, there's no real transparency about fees uh, so that you could be getting gouged on fees uh, these big pension funds just don't know where their money is being held uh, they may want to invest responsibly or ethically and there's no way of knowing that their money isn't going to, to tobacco or arms or any of these sorts of things there's a real need for more transparency and more straight through processing in asset management and investment 
industry. And having that truly digital finance, I think, is right. Uh, but to me, it's great to do this with the true believers. And I think Mellonport say uh, this entire new ecosystem of asset management tools underpinned by open source efficient secure technology is emerging faster than people realize. I think projects like Mellonport, projects like Funds DLT coming out of Luxembourg, and projects like um, well, the, and, and Cal- Callistone, who have been in the asset management space for a number of years. And Wealth An Outlier, management. who's coming on the show today. Indeed. Um, these They're all playing in that space to try to make the other side, because R3 was very much focused on the banks. Digital asset was focused, I think, on exchanges and, and the infrastructure. But there's this whole other side to the industry that's now starting to wake up. So if you're in an asset manager, uh, I think it's really time to start thinking about you know what does digital investing and what does the network between different asset managers or uh, all of the wealth managers and the distribution and uh, kind of everybody in that supply chain really start to look like. All right, Colin, so many stories this week. Let's cover very quickly. Um, A company has halted an ICO after the SEC raised registration concerns, and this comes directly from the SEC. And, and it just came right before we recorded the show. So um, there have been a few companies that have been looking at raising money through ICOs. And as we said, uh, it, it's kind of a gray area, if, if not a completely big black mark, uh, depending on who you ask. Uh, the SEC has been putting out lots of kind of um, small statements saying, really watch out what you're doing. Uh, a lot of this may not be legal. Um, and there were a few companies that we reported on that spoke with the SEC and either went ahead or didn't go ahead. This is the first time that I think I've seen the SEC come out and tell everybody that our enforcement unit on uh, cryptocurrencies and and, uh, ICOs has taken action and stopped a company from doing something. Um, So zombie marmot apocalypse, possibly. Um, Let's ask Preston Byrne about that. Um, But it is interesting to see that this this, uh, SEC unit that's looking specifically at cyber aspects, including ICOs and blockchains, has started to, to move forward and talk to companies and say, you need not go ahead because you are breaking the law. You need not go ahead. So that would get a downvote from you, Colin? That would get a big downvote from me. Don't break the law. But what about CryptoKitties? They're getting an upvote? Oh, CryptoKitties are still getting an upvote. All right. But what about Hash Puppies? Ooh, man, Hash Puppies. So I'm really excited about Hash Puppies. We'll come on to that in a second. But um, we've got to talk about Zillow. Zillow uh, is an ICO marketplace app, kind of like a mix between Amazon and Reddit for ICOs, which, let's face it, the ICO space can be pretty treacherous if you don't know what you're doing. So you can browse ICOs upvote or downvote them so good ones rise to the top and if you like an ICO you'll be able to participate using various tokens or a credit card with one click you can pre-register for the limited beta app at zla.io forward slash bi don't forget the forward slash bi because that really helps us guys um so colin last story um we've got this week is move over crypto kitties hash puppies are here so uh, the website is hash pup i.es so it's like a spanish website um, and in an effort to make f- things more scalable there's also cryptopets.co have we gone pet blockchain mad uh, i didn't we say on last week's show that this is the thing now like i i think that zilla is going to need to start putting in you know upvote and downvote puppies and kitties um because that's definitely coming um hush puppies is interesting it's not on the ethereum blockchain where crypto kitties live it's on something called neo uh, which builds itself as the ethereum of china uh this has been a Around. It used to be called AntShares. Uh, they changed their name earlier this year. Um, CryptoPets lives on Ethereum, uh, and this one's supposed to be a more advanced CryptoKitties and scales into other animals. Um, so really interesting to see where these unique tokens go now that they're not just the ERC-721s that we talked about last time, um, but they exist in other networks. I think we're going to see a pro- proliferation of these into 2018. And you mentioned NEO there, something we haven't covered a lot on this show. And um, there's also uh, in the sort of top 10, top 20 crypto asset space is a whole load of these new technologies that are getting very large and by market cap and a lot of innovation happening in that space. My real question is when we start to see um, not only crypto hedge funds, but like crypto kitty hedge funds. Wow. 
and on that bombshell there's so many stories this week uh, we don't necessarily have time to cover and we've gone long on the news um, so there's a story in the UK's uh, Telegraph newspaper's website Lily Allen the pop star from the United Kingdom regrets turning down 118 million pound Bitcoin payday I'm willing to bet they probably weren't worth that when they were initially offered um, there's a story in Wired about the, uh, a person's lost bitcoins are now worth $75 million and are under 200,000 tons of garbage. And I think he's trying to get somebody to dig through a landfill site to find his old laptop. Um, this, that's just fantastic. Um, and even the gaming website paddypower.com are talking about Bitcoin on their Instagram. Uh, and a uh, story we don't have time for, but would love to get into uh, from ripple.com. Ripple of escrowed 55 billion XRP supply for supply predictability interesting times could that be market manipulation or is that just being right for supply it's it's a brave new world who knows um don't forget listeners you can let us know what you think about any of the stories we've covered from crypto kitties to hash puppies to uh, electricity to crypto pets all of the above crypto chimera um, tweet us at Bchain Insider. Share your thoughts to at Colin G Platt or at SY Taylor if you want to pick up with us personally. Or drop us an email at podcasts at 11fs.com. A reminder that 11FS, the company that brings you this podcast, are a challenger agency who help banks, asset managers, investment managers, or anybody with a challenge in blockchain and DLT to achieve more. If you want to understand how to commercialize blockchain projects, when they're going to be real, or just have a speaker for your next event, we hope that you'll get in touch. Oh, and by the way, fintechinsidernews.com is a great place to submit stories and comment on the stories of the week. So you can reach us there too. Drop us a line at podcast11fs.com if you want to learn more. Let's dive into our interview with Jamie Burke from Outlier Ventures. Okay, so we're here with the one and only Jamie Burke from Outlier Ventures. Jamie, how are you, sir? Good, thanks. Good to be here. Yeah, nice. Thanks for coming in. And of course, we've got GSAS himself, Colin G. Platt. Still here. Still here, hanging out. Uh, Jamie, who are you? That's a good question. I ask myself that every time I wake up in the morning. Um, so I've been investing in the blockchain space for, well, as, as Outlier Ventures for about four years. Uh, and personally, a little bit before that. Um, so I guess you'd call me a VC, but you know, what does that really mean nowadays? VC, I guess. Um, so what first drew you to, uh, this subject a number of years ago? Why, why the whole subject of crypto assets, blockchain, what, what was it that captured your attention? So, um, my background Prior to kind of becoming an angel investor, the last thing that I did was uh, set up and ran a, a digital innovation change management company, grew it to about 100 people, and spent far too long working with blue chip organizations talking about changing mm. um, across many different verticals, different supply chains. So when I uh, exited from that and began angel investing, um, I had pretty good experience across lots of different sectors and, and there's a particular investment I was looking at that was looking at trying to decentralize, I think it's peer-to-peer lending at the time. And that kind of led me on this journey to Bitcoin. Um, and I looked at it, it was very intellectually, you know, uh, almost overwhelmed by its possibilities. Um, having spent far too long in the trenches with large corporates, thought they're never going to touch this. Um, but, you know, Distributed ledger, cryptographically secured tokens as unit value in the system it was very interesting. And then, of course, Ethereum came along with smart contracts and that kind of completed uh, the vision of what I kind of saw as the next phase of the web, really. This just was was intuitively felt like um, the infrastructure that was going to enable the next phase of the web. And at that point, um, I thought doing anything other than working in space would be redundant. Interesting. And you hit on something really interesting, talking about very early on looking at greater decentralization. Why why is decentralization important in your mind? Yeah, well, so I don't think people are necessarily looking for decentralization. I don't think that's on anybody's checklist, right? That's um, not what they're after. Uh, but it, but decentralization delivers certain value. Um, you know, whether it's speed and efficiency, whether it's reduction of cost, um, and so. 
you know, I think most organizations are unhappy or would like to optimize their supply chain or their value chain. And so this kind of stack promises that they can potentially optimize, reconfigure, automate. And the way that I always explain it simply is if you think of the transition from Web 2 to Web 3, Web 2 is inherently centralized, human-mediated, lots of meat in the middle, um, and generally pretty inefficient and has led to these kind of platform monopolies in almost all areas that it's touched and and fundamentally not really changed the world that much outside of maybe media and um and retail so you look at web3 and and the promises that uh you'll have kind of truer peer-to-peer environments peer-to-peer not just for people but for machine to machine autonomous entity to autonomous entity as we're moving to kind of more synthetic marketplaces um uh, more automated, potentially autonomous, um, and decentralized. And for me, decentralized is a spectrum. So it's not a kind of decentralized or centralized debate. It's on a spectrum what is sensible for that particular instance. And in many instances, you know, you, you want degrees of centralization. You want some people involved, um, but you don't want to be entirely dependent. So you, we have the technology, we have the ability to centralize today, we have the technology to involve humans, but where there are no humans or where humans are expensive or where it's hard to centralize a technology, having an alternative may be useful. You mentioned uh, machine to machine. Uh, famously, you guys were an early investor in the IOTA token and you know those guys quite well. Can you talk me through what that is and why it, why you were attracted to it? Yeah, so I, th- I think um, we, w- we were drawn to each other and, and that was largely because over the last four years of investing in the blockchain space, there are a couple of things. So we began to refine our thesis. So in total, I think we looked at uh, it was over 1,500 blockchain startups and we actually put them in a database and opened it up and categorized it all by geography. And you know, we spoke... F- the startups from Kenya to Toronto to Tokyo in every kind of shape and form. And uh, that kind of led to fairly infamous post I did, 99% of blockchain startups are bullshit, um, which was kind of the elephant in the room that uh, a lot of people were rushing to build these kind of applications and the infrastructure just wasn't there. They were trying to build proprietary businesses in an open source environment. Um and so we began to kind of refine our thesis to say, well, okay, you know, where does it make sense to invest? And and we were really kind of looking for blue ocean um, space because, you know, financial services, the banks were heavily moving into that space. And so it, it kind of felt uninteresting for us. So uh, we, we kind of, based upon signals that we're seeing in the market, I mean, I've lost all concept of space and time in the last year. I, I think two years ago, um, we started to see distributed ledger technology being used in combination with things like IoT or AI. And we thought, well, that's quite interesting. We started to see that coming through more and more. And we increasingly started to think that when you look at the ledger, the distributed ledger part of this Web3 stack, that increasingly that would become commoditized. It should become commoditized because it should be uh, free or to the point of close to the point of free. Um, it shouldn't have this kind of rent-seeking proprietary, you know, middle in it. Um, and so if you kind of accept that, then um, it's what's going to be enabled on top that was most interesting. And so we started to look at all of this stuff as the kind of the, the base layer that would enable things like AI or IoT or 3D printing or autonomous robotics to scale. Um, especially as we're kind of looking at uh, increasingly more autonomous environments. So um, we developed what was called the convergence thesis, and this was looking at blockchain plus, so blockchain plus IoT, blockchain plus AI. Um, We'd actually been, uh, so we started talking about this quite a bit, and um, we'd become aware of uh, David and Dom and IOTA um, probably a year before we invested at events. We had the kind of same corporate ecosystem. Obviously, they're based in Germany. If you follow the convergence thesis, then its natural conclusion is you end up looking at industrial supply chains at Industry 4.0. You end up looking at mobility, smart cities. 
um, and Germany kind of is the, the heartland, not just of Europe, of the world, actually, I think, in looking at industry um, and its applications of DLT and, and AI. So um, we kind of kept on, we were aware of IOTA, um, we kept on hearing them come up we were being asked by our corporate ecosystem bosch daimler siemens you know or deutsche bahn all these guys um they were asking us uh, and so we we kind of started to inquire built up a good rapport with them um and it was just a natural fit to the convergence thesis and actually if you think about it the kind of base layer so you know, how do you connect uh, you know, distributed ledgers to large data sets was well, largely going to be through sensory input. So um, that kind of felt like the base layer um, before you started to kind of build, uh, invest at the other layers of the stack. And, you know, we're also now investing in protocols designed specifically for AI and machine learning, for example, um, to allow for high degrees of autonomy and autonomous economic agents and all this kind of stuff. So let's unpack some of that because there's, there's an awful lot there. There's your journey, I think, into understanding that there's white space out there. And it's really interesting that the IoT and the industrial IoT, the IIoT, this area in which there's lots of transactions of things that's happening. There's lots of people looking at how their supply chain is financed, but not only is it financed, how the activity within that and all of the things that are manufactured or paid for are built from a power station right down to industrial equipment. Typically, that's on OPEX. In other words, I pay for that with my operational expenditure. I'm not paying with CapEx. I'm not paying off one-off. I'm renting or leasing the thing. And I'm usually doing it based on performance. And if I'm doing it based on performance, how did I know how it performed? Well, somebody runs around with a spreadsheet, tries to figure out how it performed and checks that against a contract. So automating that has room to go. But if we're moving into a world with billions and billions of devices on a farm somewhere and they're low cost and low powered, maybe Visa and MasterCard or Swift aren't the right way for them to, to transact amongst each other. So that, that to me seems, strikes me as a really interesting insight, number one. And then insight number two is, this convergence thesis of where do these new technologies hit uh, the uh, kind of the whole blockchain and DLT space. So that was your thesis and IoT was one and AI is another and, and you're playing in that convergence space. Yeah, that's right. And, um, and you know, if you, the, the, the reality is with hindsight, you look at um, the blockchains that are out there and they're not they're not designed, at least in their current form, for um, microtransactions, for machine-to-machine -machine sharing of data, small data packets. Um, and so what really excited us about IOTA and Tangle as an innovation um, was the idea that this was a, um, technically it's a, a DAG, um, directed acyclic graph. I have to kind of always tell myself that every morning to make sure I, I don't say acrylic graph. And it's or something it's like very that. different design to Bitcoin or Ethereum. It, it it really is kind of taking a different approach. And they have something they call the Tangle. Exactly. And conceptually, the Tangle. How would you describe that? So, um, so firstly, there are no blocks and there are no chains. Um, and the, the important way to understand this is the way that their ledger functions is it's not sequential. So they actually call it um, parallel validation. Um, so everybody checks everybody else. Exactly. So if you think about the current economic and technical design uh, of a typical blockchain, you decouple the user from the miner or the validator. Um, and here they're kind of one and the same. So as a user, um, for me to have a transaction processed, I must first process two other transactions in the network. It can also um, uh, happen from what are called parent transactions. But the, the fundamental point is that the tension that you have in scaling issues um, in other blockchains where miners want to do um, large transactions with high fees um it fundamentally is at odds with wanting to have a zero fee environment with lots of small transactions so and i think your risk is different so if i'm moving a bitcoin i'm moving to uh, today's prices when we're recording sixteen thousand dollars god knows what this will be by thursday by the time this show drops but yeah. the there's a very different thing therefore i want to move a couple of basis points of a dollar 
between uh, this device and that device and i want to do that thousands of times per minute per second whatever that may be exactly and you know the the, the point is that it might not even be a financial transaction it might just be passing of data that may have no value you know um people are drowning in data lakes at the moment and they don't they've got more data people don't want big data right so i think the really interesting thing about iota and the recent um proof of concept they launched with a handful of industrialists was this data marketplace so i've got all this data um how can i create a decentralized marketplace where that data can be sold and that can be sold to um you know individuals analysts or it can be in theory sold to ai and and what have you so it's specifically designed for enabling iot to scale um securely um and in a, in a way that generalized protocol generalized blockchains aren't um and so that was kind of one of the most really interesting things so where's that project at where are the um where do you think and then zooming out from that where do you think the industry's at and its development can somebody use iota can somebody use one of these technologies in production or are we still a little ways away from that yes it's still very early days you know and i think um if you kind of zoom out and you you look at the context of um uh, where we are at the moment in terms of the hype cycle um well every you know emergent technology goes through that hype cycle i think the difference here is it's elongated because the people involved in the hype have a direct financial stake in the system so it's exact it's amplified and elongated um and sometimes it feels like it reverses back up <laughs> and it kind of drops back down um but you know generally everybody's rightfully got very excited about this stack of technologies and what, what it promises. Um, and it's the same is true for IOTA, the same true for Ethereum, you know, how many things are happening at scale are, on any of these things. In reality, not many. Um, often they're kind of getting clogged up by crypto kitties and, you know, so it's, it's all still very nascent. Um, I think if you look at IOTA, um, they were as cautious as they could be. So in, in, in theory, they didn't list on an exchange for a year from when they ICO'd um, to try and avoid all the hype. They had a pri private market on the Slack channel where people could kind of um, uh, trade tokens. But um, the, the thing about IOTA is that it, 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 as it scales, it's more secure and it, it has higher throughput. It, it, it's speed increases because it's the node securing the network. Um, so unlike most of the blockchains, which are currently struggling with scaling, um, IOTA actually, you know, the, the more nodes actually, in theory, it should get faster, it should get, faster, um, it should get more secure. Can I ask a question? Just take a, a big change in the direction of this is uh, I want to I talk a bit about um, prices going up and being an investor, a venture capitalist of sorts in the space. How has this changed versus, um, you know, you're very traditional, invest in early stage companies. Um, we see ICOs and, you know, one year going from, well, we had an ICO, but we didn't list to, to going up and, and the prices have been astounding, the returns on this, which congratulations on that. Um, do you have the same time horizon as necessarily one of those companies or have you had to adjust that thesis and how you operate? Yeah, so it's a good question. That's why I'm more inclined to reference being a VC um, because I think it's an important distinction between a trader. Um, so there are a lot of self-made funds almost, right? People have put their private capital to work. That's what we did at Outlier. So actually we're LLP. And so we've deployed our own private capital. It's just as there are about 20 of us now. Um, uh, and a, a lot of guys are now going on to create funds, which are effectively hedge funds. You know, they're there to kind of trade and maybe they believe they can pick alpha or maybe they're just building uh, picking quant trading strategies and the reality is you know i heard a stat the other day if you invested in every ico this year including all those all those that failed you would have had a multiple of a thousand mm -hmm. so sometimes i feel like we might be the stupid guys the stupidest guys, we're either the smartest guys or the stupidest guys in the room but the fact is you're in the game <laughs> yeah we, well we have a thesis right and so all of our bets are correlated which you know is not what you do in, in a typical investment you kind of look to diversify and so we're, we're making a lot of correlated bets um we 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 take long-term horizons actually um we have four 
um, offerings coming off the ramp that we spent about a year working with, very hands-on, and I'll maybe unpack that a little bit later. Um, and we've chosen for our uh, our tokens to vest alongside the founding teams, sometimes over a three-year period. So almost, I, I, I kind of kick myself, we've chosen to be locked in to a liquid asset class, um, which again, might be really stupid, um, but uh, the point is we intend to be a signal. So my big belief at the moment is if, and this is where I think a lot of traditional VCs are going to fail, they're used to people coming to them because capital was scarce. You know, to unlock VC capital, um, it was almost like, how are you going to convince me that I need to give you my money? And I still see it on panels, VC panels I go to at the moment. Um, you know, capital is not scarce now. And um, ICOs, rightly or wrongly, can raise more money than most funds have at their disposal in 30 minutes. So I think being a source of capital is 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 a defunct model has the pendulum swung too far the other way on that though has it become too easy to raise capital we covered in the news earlier that the sec has actually uh, contacted somebody about maybe halting their ico because it, it could go too far the other way how do you tread that fiduciary responsibility line as somebody looking to deploy capital in the space which could be seen as quite risky from a regulatory perspective well so i mean there's different ways that you navigate it we have a particular approach to these things and so um, as i mentioned we've got uh, four offerings coming off the ramp um, typically well in fact they are they are all equity-based investments that we've made um, and we're helping them transition from being a proprietary equities-based business into becoming an open source entity, could be a foundation, could be whatever, um, where they're tokenizing effectively the value in that system as, as, as their IP. Um, and we personally spend, uh, in some cases, we spent up to 12 months um, working with them on bit of a buzzword but the crypto economic design or tokenomics of the system um, we work very closely with imperial college their computer science department and uh, their economics department uh, in order to think through you know this is a we believe we're investing in digital economies um, generally open source digital economies and so we actually think the obligation is to think through the design the game theory the behavioral economics of of how these economies are going to function um, because you can hard code monetary and fiscal policy into them. And so actually, I think the, the responsibility is in the design. Mm -hmm. How much they raise, for me, will come down to how sustainable are they going to be as economies. Um, and but do you not think that some people rushed into this space because it was, there was some ICO mania for a little while and a lot of these are going to disappear? Oh, totally, yeah. I mean, look, so the, the way to frame... Well, th th there's two ways to, to look at this. One is kind of as the optimist and one is as the pessimist. And I think you need to kind of keep both of, both of those hats Angel on. Yeah, right. So, you know, as an optimist, um, for me, um, this is the, the, the innovation of uh, tokenization, fractionalization, and then securitization, if you want to call it that, depending on how you deploy it, or financialization of value. Um is a huge innovation because what it means is all of a sudden there's a business model for open source. And to give you some context, um, for, for four years, of the four years we've been investing in the space, the first three years, people were coming with proprietary business models. Now, the conventional wisdom is in equities-based investing, 90% of startups fail. So if you think about that as a way to finance innovation, that's a really fucking inefficient way to finance innovation. 90% of capital deployed, billions goes to waste all, all ips lost know-hows lost teams dissipate but if it's an open source and it's put out there what what i find interesting though is um we've got the likes of uh corda and hyperledger where you do have capital that's coming in in a very different way as an open source project being deployed into the open source so the permissioned blockchain world if you will is still putting code out into the open source this crypto asset space is putting it all out into open source the really interesting question is what's actually going to turn a profit for people where's the real revenue here jamie yeah, so I mean, it, it depends on the use case, right? And and this comes down to the fundamentals of the market, right? And this is why I struggle with generalized blockchains and ledgers. Um, because actually, again, you, you're designing for a digital economy. So what are the nuances and needs of that particular industry? How does that 
economy currently function? What are its stakeholder groups? How does it currently behave or misbehave? How do you want to incentivize or disincentivize? And so um, the reward mechanism, i.e. profit, um, should be designed specifically for that. But generally, I'll give you, um, I'll give you a, an answer so it's a bit more tangible. So in the context of um, convergence, we have this kind of vision of the stack. And at the top of that stack, we believe is AI. So it's the, the combination of DLT and uh, IoT, um, DLT and AI. That means that um, the AI piece is where you're going to be able to move things around in a more intelligent way. You're going to be able to have objects with digital twins. You're going to have entirely synthetic entities like autonomous economic agents um, that effectively uh, form markets and ideally optimize markets. Um, and so we believe the most value is going to be created, not in the kind of dumb piping, but in the intelligence that's going to be enabled on top. But haven't people been trying to monetize the piping and not the intelligence so far? And then surely the things that where the capital are right, where the capital is right now and where the market cap is right now suddenly starts to look overpriced. Well, overpriced or underpriced is, is, is a difficult th- thing to say. So, so my, my personal perspective is um, if you look at market cap, if you can call it that, of various protocols. So I don't think people are looking at, let's say, um, a Bitcoin or a, a Myota or whatever it is as an asset and saying, well, maybe I put £10,000 into that or I put it put it into an oil and gas commodity. Right? They're not, they're going, I have £100,000, I want to put that to play in crypto and how do I rank um, the protocols that have the most promise? So I actually think people aren't going does the market cap make sense? I think they're saying, does the ranking of this protocol make sense? Um, so I think, you know, paying attention too much to market cap is misleading. For me, I look at it in the context of um, what does, how is this protocol and the community behind it delivering on the promise? And so how do you measure a protocol in an open source environment? You're measuring the network. Interesting. Any last points, Colin? No, I think it's it, you made some very interesting points there, and I think this convergence theme is definitely something we're going to hear more and more about. Um, and I, I, it's really fortunate to see not only we're talking about all these cool technologies, but really that open source, that kind of central point you made, um, is a growing industry in itself, and that can change a lot of things, as you said, Simon, um, that when a company goes bust, if they put their stuff out there, somebody else can pick up and run with what works. So uh, good luck to you guys. Congratulations on IOTA, and we hope to see more from it. Cool. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being on the show. A big thank you to Jamie for being on the show this week. And of course, my regular co-host at Colin G. Platt. Um, You've been enjoying the sass and the pets this week? I've been enjoying the sass, the pets and the snow in London. And and the beer. Um, Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please, please subscribe to our podcast. Leave us a review on iTunes. We love reading those reviews. And if you can involve crypto kitties in those reviews, you may even win a prize. Uh, spread the word. Tell all your friends and tell your colleagues to listen too. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye.